in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. How you feeling, Brian? I'm feeling good. I, I always wanted the term lieutenant to apply to me. That just sounds like a cool word. It is good. Better than right tenant, and it's you know obviously it's spelled <laughs> wrong. You know, you just got back from some traveling, right? I hope none of it was boring or annoying. Oh, no, not a bit. I mean, traveling with a, a two-year-old is just all sunshine and peaches. Wonderful. Sounds like there was no chance of annoyance at all. None. None. <laughs> I, it's not so much annoying as uh, I, I'm tired all the time, ever. <laughs> uh, energy up for this uh, for this movie tonight, but we're not going alone. Oh, I get to uh, sit for a, this. <laughs> we've got a guest for this voyage. Listeners, you may remember him coming to our aid when we almost lost a guest for our Akira episode last year. Uh, he filled in valiantly. He's out of Dallas, Texas, soon to be relocating back to Austin, Texas for a more close quarters shenaniganery with yours truly. We have returning John Resendez. John, how are you? Hello, hello. I'm great. And I would be a midshipman if, you know, for, for continuing that. <laughs> we'd have had to start. Yeah, yeah we'd have had yeah. to start that somewhere mm-hmm. when we were eight years older, apparently. <laughs> we're, we haven't even said what movie we're covering, but uh, we are going to be sailing dangerously close to retro book round table here, Brian. Uh, so only before if, we do. <laughs> only if I open my mouth. Yeah, only if you say anything on the podcast. But before we do, I figured I would actually throw a first like counter here with a little stop in retro music roundtable. You've been traveling, so you might have been listening to some music in your headphones or podcast or whatever. What retro music have y'all been listening to lately? I'll start. I was listening to a little LCD sound system today. Uh, Daft Punk is playing at my house. And then I rolled that into some Eagles of Death Metal. Uh, well, we all know it's for the children, so I've been listening to a whole bunch of Wu-Tang. <laughs> Wu-Tang Clan Wu-Tang for is for the children. Wu-Tang's <laughs> for the kids. I, I, <laughs> no, listen, no lie, the first thing I bought when we found out we were expecting is a onesie and a matching um, bib, and it says, protect your neck. And then, <laughs> and then, and then the onesie's got the Wu-Tang emblem on it. Right? You can get the Wu-Tang outfits at Baby Gap. No. <laughs> <laughs> what about yeah. you, John? What have you been listening to? Uh, Madonna and Justin Timberlake aside. Yeah, yeah, which which is a treat. Um, but um, I've been listening to Third Eye Blind, which a friend of mine recently nice. said behind my back that that is me entering the dad phase of my life, mm. listening to Third Eye Blind. Do you guys agree with that or no? Well, given how much I listened to it back in the mid to late 90s, uh, I, I don't think I had any children back then. Yeah. I guess we were both young teens in the late 90s. Right. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure. 
Yeah, I was like, I was like six. So there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, that, that was well, it. The, so maybe me getting into it now is like me getting into like retro alt right. Like, is that a dad thing? I don't know. I, I remember making mixtapes off the radio because we couldn't burn CDs yet, <laughs> and songs like that would be on it. So I, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, maybe for his age range, your age range, maybe that yeah. is considered like dad like music reaching back or something but i listened okay. to the cure and that would have been the same thing for me i was like six when you know we're, we're gonna move on to movie questions now so if you don't forgive me <laughs> i would understand <laughs> in spirit Beautiful. today's movie and what is today's movie brian we are watching we are talking about master and commander the far side of the world a nautical movie um so in the spirit of this movie is there another movie about the sea, a nautical movie that you just love? Uh, John? Aside from just the cliche pirates, which are fantastic movies, I love them. Uh, but I'm probably going to go with Titanic. It's oh. a little nautical movie. Um, I know y'all have covered it before as well, but like that movie to me encapsulates the idea of uh, obviously near the end. Uh, the, the sea does not want you there. Right. Hmm. It, it, it it is uh, even without being attacked, like just being in the ocean is terrifying. it's not our home. It's not our home. And I like that aspect. It's a similar reason why I like like space travel movies and stuff like that. You're surrounded by space. Space is not our home. You're in a place that is not your home on a tiny little vessel. That's a cool way of looking at that. Mm-hmm. Brian, what about you? I was going to guess for you. Uh, go, go. Red October. Oh, that's a good uh, one. And then as a joke, I was going to guess Under Siege. You a big Seagal fan? Uh, you know, I, di- I did like that movie. My wife and I have a continuing disruption in our marriage where I like submarine movies and she hates submarine movies. So, like... <laughs> the old what? classic. Yes. <laughs> like Everyone has that problem. Well, one no. of those things. You know those submarine things? Yeah, me and my wife <laughs> have that too. I, I think it's because uh, her dad probably watched Hunt for October one too many times and it just so happens that I also enjoy that movie. But usually like U571, Crimson Tide... That kind of stuff is typically like I get a bad look if I venture in that direction. But uh, ironically enough, based on a conversation we were having earlier, it's a Tom Hanks movie uh, that I've been really jonesing on recently. I completely forgot about this when we were talking about it. But it's a movie called Greyhound, and it was on uh, Apple Plus uh, that they filmed on there. And it's about um, the Atlantic crossings during World War II and mm. the ships assigned to protect those convoys. Awesome movie. Freaking so not a it. bus station. Not a bus station. <laughs> okay. Not a bus Good. movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you told me about this like a year ago. Still haven't watched it, but I remembered you liking it. Uh, for me, uh, Titanic's actually my number two. I made a little mini list of my, my favorite nautical movies. Oh, I love lists. Let's hear it. My number one. I guess I'll, I'll do a I'll do a countdown backwards. My number three, Muppet Treasure Island. Oh, incredible, wonderful songs, and then your favorite puppets in the world. Titanic's number two, and then for me, number one is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Oh, that's a good choice. That I, if if I get three now, I'm going to go with Pirate Radio. I'm going to go with Greyhound, and then I got to give it up for Jaws, right? Jaws. Like if, oh, if we're yeah, saying Jaws. besides Master and Commander, so yeah, Master and Commander would be up there too for me. Well, uh, what is the last movie you did see, aside from what we're covering tonight, Master Commander? John, what's the last movie? Um, I did a, a double feature of Lost City, the new, the new one with Sandra Bullock and Channing mm-hmm. Tatum, uh, which is basically a, a redone Romancing the Stone. Um, oh. And 
uh, also Uncharted. So I've I've ba- both like treasure hunting movies, yeah. which which I realized are basically just heist movies in disguise, and I'm loving it. I think I'm gonna do like The Mummy, I, Adventures of Tintin. Like I'm gonna go uh, and look up more treasure hunting heisty movies. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That Lost City movie is doing like gangbusters on downloads. I keep hearing really. That. Mm-hmm. It's pretty funny, uh, Brian. Hmm. What's the last movie you saw? Uh, it's it's because we were watching this. Uh, I went on and downloaded Gallipoli, so I watched that recently. That's my most recent in in person watch at home. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Gallipoli, another Peter Weir movie. Yep. That that's cool because I, I I actually thought about that myself. I did. I, I actually, John, for a second, I thought you were going to say the same movie that I watched. I did a little double feature. I watched Gladiator. I had oh yeah. Yeah, and I was I was glad to. It's one that I uh, re- I come back to every once in a while, uh, and I believe I believe y'all that I've added a I've added one of those movies to the list. One of those movies that I'll just come back to uh, with Master and Commander from two thousand three, starring Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany, James Darcy, and Edward Woodall. Released in two thousand three, a two hundred twelve million dollar box office against a budget of one hundred fifty million. Placed thirty first uh, in in the box office that year, right behind Cold Mountain and right above Legally Blonde two, Red, White, and Blue. The number one movie that year was The Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King. Obviously, it actually took home most of the hardware that year as well. I think it Our, still holds I, the record. I believe. I, yeah, I don't know how many total. Was it 10? I think it's 10, yeah. Yeah. I know that of the other, like, there, there were two that Master and Commander took home, which were Best Cinematography and Best Sound Editing, but Best Picture, Best Director, Art Direction, Costume Design, Film Editing, Makeup, Sound Mixing, and Visual Effects, all of those Master and Commander lost out to Return of the King. It, it really sucks to me, too, because this this movie probably had a shot at getting a memorable number of awards had return of the king not given all the consolation like (sighs) return of the king for me is one of those movies that they were like you know what we should have given all these things to you right off the bat for fellowship but we wanted to see if you ran this franchise into the ground or not so because you finished it and you finished it reasonably well, we're going to give you, we're going to backlog all of those awards and here you go. And they didn't want to make the same mistake they made with uh, George Lucas. So I look at return of the King as, as being awarded for the trilogy, not return of the King specifically. I'm definitely picking up what you're laying down. Uh, the first thing I was thinking, like it was uh, a makeup call in a basketball yeah. game, like oh, oh okay, yeah, hundred percent. That that's actually the second thing I thought in my head. I was like, it's like yeah. when when you're like, we screwed up that first call. We've made uh-huh. the second call, which isn't great either, to make up for it. Play ball. <laughs> well, there, there were some other things here too. I was 16 when this came out, and I remember hearing from not peers, not other friends, because we were all busy watching. You know. The Lord of the Rings Return of the King. But I remember hearing things about this movie not being something that we should be excited to see. Uh, I think it it didn't even place number one in the box office the weekend it came out. It was beaten by Elf. And then there were other other big movies like artsy movies and stuff come out. I think Lost in Translation came out that year. And it was also in the running for Best Picture. It won Best Original Screenplay. So like this was 
uh, maybe a time when, who knows, had it been a different year, how many uh, awards it would have taken home. So um, I, I, I've got a great story about first viewing this movie. Um, I took my then-girlfriend, now-wife, we were all in college, took my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I want to say five or six of my roommate-slash-close friends, every single one of us was hung over to an exponent. Like, this was like a maybe a one o'clock in the afternoon movie or something like that. We were all, A little bit too much grog the night before. We were all really messed up, and I was the only person out of all of them to stay awake the entire movie. Not only did <laughs> I stay awake the entire movie, like, <laughs> yeah, I just big, big Ooh, grin on my face. I was like, this is, where are these movies? Like, I want more of this. This is more of what I want in life. Why, why don't I have more like real life pirate movies. Why do I not get more, you know, legit sailing movies? This is excellent. Had to wake two of them up. Everybody else sort of, uh, you know, that last fight scene kind of woke some of them up and they were like, Oh yeah, that was long and boring. I'm like, you slept through the whole thing, man. So anyway, it took years and I'm talking years. I think it was about eight months ago. I had master and commander on relatively toward the beginning. My wife watched the whole thing and she was like, Oh, that was a really good movie. And I just had this in just, just hate, just hate, (laughs) just out my eyes and nose and neck, just, just steaming. And she's like, oh, you're mad because I I fell asleep that first time. Oh yeah. You like it now? You like it now? So anyway, it took, it took a while, but you know, this is, this is the girl that won't watch us. The girl that won't watch a submarine movie. So it looks like as long as the ship's made out of wood. It's fine. Yeah, it's it's safe. <laughs> yeah, John, what was it like for you? I know that I had seen it close to when it came out. It might have been in theaters, but it, I was like eleven or something like that. Um, and I do remember liking it. But interestingly, I do remember not liking the ending. Uh, I didn't remember exactly what it was before reviewing it, but I remember not feeling like there was a closure. And I was interested to see if that was going to change. Well, I mean, we're not talking in-depth details yet uh, because we're going to save any spoilers till after the ad break. But uh, I imagine that did change on this on this rewatch. That, that oh, there was... absolutely, yeah. Uh, I I don't I can understand why somebody would uh, or a, my younger self would maybe think that, but I don't share that opinion now. And in the same way that some of your friends fell asleep. Brian, like I can also understand why somebody could watch this movie and genuinely say like, yeah, not a lot happened. Like three major things happened and that's fair. Like, and if they don't like that pacing, like that's fair to them. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I, I, not to get too deep into this because Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of the bread and butter for this movie. The characters in this film make the film like you have to be invested in the sailing master, in his first officer, in Billy Boyd's character, in you know the the kind of hooligan crew, and like there's there's so much interaction and and how they show their deference to some officers and not to others. Uh, I just I found the characters in this film so compelling. Yeah, I also did. And we're, we're going to take some time on that after the break. I got to say, you mentioned something about liking nautical movies and liking the Pirates franchise. And I think what, what happened was, is the world, the world that watches movies, was presented a choice. 
and they voted via box office. What do you want? And what did we find that the world wanted? Five more Pirates movies. And even, even Weir <coughs> said, hey, this, this movie was successful-ish, but not successful enough to start a franchise. Now, I know there's talks right now about a potential prequel, but the idea is that this could have been the choice that the movie-watching world made was let's get some more of this historical fiction, huh? And the next year we get Troy, right? And then like just three years earlier, we got The Patriot. It's not like, it's not like these movies weren't successful, but we made our choice as, a, as an audience. And the choice was Pirates of the Caribbean and Johnny Depp, um, which is fine. But I think, uh, you know, we mentioned in our music sort of the dadification. I think dads... <laughs> dads dads uh, liking us, military history no us, way <laughs> <laughs> us three dads uh, would have <laughs> would have preferred this one instead um well you know i think that covers a lot of our little uh little pre-show come on back after the break brian is going to reveal a plot summary about this spoilers ahead uh, but we'll see you here in just a minute or so with that plot summary Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we are back, and it's time for a plot summary for 2003's Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. Take it away, Brian. Captain Lucky Jack Aubrey is the captain of the HMS Surprise. His orders are to follow the Acheron, French sailed, into the Pacific to sink, burn, or take her a prize. Together with his best friend and ship surgeon, Stephen Matron, they go about this task with a smaller, older ship, but with the cunning and creativity of a master seaman. After a sneak attack at dawn nearly destroys the surprise, the captain engages in a cat-and-mouse game with the Acheron that takes the ship, its crew, and its captain through a series of trials and perils of the mighty sea. Battle, drought, cold, doldrums, and even accidental firearm injuries. You get to see the Motley crew's abilities as they struggle to achieve their task. This all culminates in one of the most thrilling naval and hand-to-hand battles in film history, with Lucky Jack coming out on top. After all, surprise was on his side. Succinct. Succinct for a movie of this, of, of all the things that happen, and not all of them uh, huge show-stopping moments. In fact, it's uh, really, and I love that you use the phrase cat and mouse here, it really is a long cat and mouse pursuit. And I find that the roles of Tom and Jerry here actually change a couple times between the, uh, the Acheron and the surprise. Would you say, and I'll pose this question to both of you, would you say that this movie really epitomizes the old phrase, it's about the journey and not the destination? Truly, because there wasn't technically a destination for this film, at least not the film. Yeah, I would think so too. It's also a decent bit about 
why they're going on the journey in the first place, why they're chasing it and sort of the internal things going on with Jack as well. It's not so much as getting the Acheron specifically because of, of all of the like ship combat ship chasing that only is maybe 20% of the film, 30%, I think like the most of it is like just watching the crew be the crew, the crew interactions, the different things that happen in between, which is what's really, really fun to watch as an audience member. That percentage you were talking about is, um, Whenever the two ships are actually in close proximity to one another, whether it's one surprising the other, giving chase, uh, we have, uh, I think, in total, like five of those moments throughout the movie. And then the rest of it is sort of these relationships between who's on the ship. I wrote this out. This, This movie contains several of these relationships between a captain and his crew. A captain and his officers, sort of in training, on-the-job training. A captain and his closest friend, a matron. The officers with one another, the crew and their superiors. And then, even though this is the order given, the, the captain of the surprise, Jack Aubrey, and this rival French captain of the Acheron. So we've got all these relationships. I think that's maybe the thing about the movie that you take away would you say and john i'll ask you this do you do you think all of these relationships contribute equally to the success of this movie or is there one that really carries the lion's share i i think if if i had to pick one and i really think it's two strongest ones sure uh, which i'll say both yeah the i think it's it's the rivalry between jack and the french captain um they're mutual respect for each other's like naval combat and uh captaincy and their their abilities to play the game they're they're having fun in a way and the other one uh which i would argue is the the more important one is between uh steven and jack the uh, surgeon and the captain i think is the dry i think it has the most screen time it also is the more emotionally impacting one Part part of that is due to the tremendously good acting by Paul Bettany, but I, I think those two drive the movie. Uh, everything else enhances the different scenes, but those two are the ones that, at least for me, I really cared about going through the movie. What about you, Brian? Uh, we get introduced to Captain Jack. He's waking up in the very early hours by some of the other officers uh, sort of um, calling out what they see through the fog. Incredible opening scene, by the way. So it's so slow, too. Like, it takes its time. There are two or three different lines from naval and naval-esque movies that really resonate. Like, it's just like, God, I want to be someone who says that sometime. And this this movie opens up with one where he goes, We shall be to quarters! Like, <laughs> and it just starts, you know, drawing everybody's like, they're, you know, it's like that jumps into the, the gearing up scene. And I'm like, that's awesome. Like, like that's, that's one of them. And, uh, it's, it's that sort of thing that I, I really appreciate about naval movies. This is a perilous thing. Like you talk about relationships and how important they are. If you do not have some level of homogeny on all of those relationships, then putting this many people, this many warriors on a boat 
for months at a time is, is an inherently dangerous prospect without them in battle. When you add the fact that the ocean's trying to kill them, weather's trying to kill them, and now this, this bigger, faster ship is trying to kill them. It takes not only those strong interpersonal relationships and overcoming adversity in that end, but then they also have to overcome a greater adversity just from the standpoint of what they're up against. And I think that's what I really took away as one of the strongest parts of this film. Because, you know, when you talk about the, the two captains playing off one another, I see one guy using fairly pedestrian means to one up a guy with a handicap. And then you see a guy who is, is an outside the box thinker, a, a tactician that's willing to do weird, you know, odd stuff, you know, go outside of the book. To, to make things happen and how it pays off for him. Like, cause they're all gambles. Like there's nothing that says, Oh, this will definitely work. But his nickname is lucky Jack. Right. And, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll quote rogue one on this one. You take the chance and then you take the next chance and you keep taking the chances until the chances run out. I think as far as lines, I don't know if I'd ever want to say it, but certain lines that stand out, I know I mentioned the Patriot earlier, but I love, I love when he says, uh, <laughs> when he's at like the plantation home and Tavington goes, fire the house and barns. <laughs> fire the house and barns. Save the horses for the dragoons. <laughs> so certain lines just stand out to you. And oh, yeah. uh, we're going we're gonna to get to our favorite quotes later because there's a lot of good lines in this. Well, in, in direct relation to what you were saying about like the, the captaincy, everyone's, they're all on this perilous thing. They have to like be in it together was uh, – his line where he says, uh, good or bad men must be governed. You know, yep. that's sort of like that, that has a lot to do with the relationships that you were talking about uh, earlier. Dustin was a lot of those are hierarchical relationships on the ship. There has that I, that ideal of there has to be, even if it's not the right choice, it's a choice that we're all making together, you know? Um, uh, yeah. There, there. I, I have a buddy who, you know, he questions a lot of authority and, and pieces like that. And I've literally used a line from this movie with him, just off on a tangent where he's talking about something, and I just say, "You've come to the wrong place for anarchy, brother." Yeah. Like I, I love that line. I absolutely love that line. Well, and that is that is a line between one of these relationships between Stephen uh, Maturin, the surgeon, Paul Bettany's character, introduced to us during a time of crisis. When we first, because I was mentioning when we first see these characters, Captain Jack jumps into command, takes up the spyglass, sees what they're up against. Another great reveal when I believe it's uh, young Mister Hollum, the uh, midshipman who first sees that there's something out there, but nobody else sees it. And then what, what when Captain Jack Aubrey sees through the spyglass is just the firing of the cannons gets everybody down. Now we're jumping in. We're only six, seven minutes in. We're jumping into action, and which, which then becomes, a, oh, we are severely outmatched. We have to get away from this. Uh, and then uh, at the same time, we are introduced to our surgeon who's operating while they're being attacked, I believe. Uh, what's another great line? He... he he looks up from his his table. What the not fire? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like he what he understands what should be going on, and what we as an audience get is that all right. Well, th- this guy is central and important uh, to to what we're seeing. So is the captain, 
And I think this is where maybe, Brian, we're going to get close to, to Retro Book Roundtable. They take pieces of almost every single one of those first 10 to make this movie. This movie is right. a conglomerate of, you know, they take heavily from book one, which is titled Master and Commander. And mm-hmm. there are bits and pieces like Steven being shot and operating on himself. That was in a completely different book. Far Side of right. the World really doesn't have anything to do with a French ship. I mean, there's, yeah. So there's a lot that they're just, they're piecing together some of the most exciting parts of the series to make this one film. And they're also inter- like injecting the movie with the things about these characters that had you been fans of these characters, you would have known already. Some of these things are characteristics like Captain Jack Aubrey likes to make puns. And we get that in a conversation scene with the officers later. We know that uh, Maturin is sort of anti-authority, but if you are familiar with the books, you know that he's also a secret British agent. Like these, these are things like things that they have taken from the source material and put into this movie. And I feel as if the things that they they show us, they show us just enough of before we are in a space where all right, we see who our two leads are. Then we're introduced to the rest of these characters, um, and we already brought up one by name. You brought up a couple, but um, Mr. Hollum, uh, midshipman. He, he's a very interesting character in this film because it's not at all who he was in the book. Uh, when they use Hollum's character in the book, uh, he gets murdered by a fellow crew member um, in the book. The crew member in question had brought his wife along on the village uh, on the voyage and Hollum was banging her and they end up on this Island and it's presumed that the, I want to see who's like a, a gunner's like he has some position of middling importance anyway it's assumed that he killed both of them well the uh i think his usage in this movie accomplishes something for us. oh i completely agree like this is one of those changes where i'm like oh good on you so uh, hollum's role like it serves a purpose which is uh creating a, a conflict among some of them now we have the first conflict which is that among the other officers Captain Aubrey says, we're not going home. The second conflict is a, I think in most nautical movies, this would be a mutiny. Like this would be a a rebellious act against our captain. But instead we have it against an officer. John, what were you going to say? I'm just so happy it didn't go there. Um, That's that's something that like I'm just sort of exhausted from. I had watched uh, Black Sails recently, mm. and I feel like a, a mutiny happens or is threatened to happen like every four episodes. Sure. Um, and it's uh, in most pirate movies, it's almost always going to happen or be threatened to happen. It's just something that is nice to see conflict among the captain's uh, decisions and the crew's feelings about it, but it's it not getting to that point. It does get redirected. But. Well, with the British Navy, especially during the Napoleonic War, they brought the vast majority of their crew with them from command to command, at least a, a very core group. So um, guys like Killick and uh, Billy Boyd's character that I'm blanking on his name right now. Yeah, so there's there, he's got this core group 
that are, you know, just sailors that come along with him. Like even Killick is his, his chef and his like house man servant when they're on land. So even if he doesn't have a command, you know, several of these guys just are with him at any given time. Also, uh, Jack Aubrey is known for always getting the prize. Uh, that's the reason they call him Lucky Jack is because he always manages to find ships that they're allowed to take. Um, so he's very fortunate in prize money. Uh, so that's kind of how he gets his nickname. And he's also known for absolutely exceptional gunnery. So they go into it a little bit when they're training to fire two broadsides to the other ship's one. So throughout the books, it's kind of expressed that even though he has enemies in the Admiralty, if any ship captain can get a Albury trained sailor, it's understood that they're the best at their job. And I think he manages that by the fact that he's not a tyrant, but he also won't put up with any BS. It sounds as if uh, Pullings becoming the captain of the captured Acheron. He is clearly been under command with uh, Captain Jack Aubrey for long enough that he must be, um, you know, held in high regard. And I think that's another cool thing about this movie. Something I was really not expecting is his relationship with these midshipmen. These, these, these young sort of officers in training, like the lowest officer you can be, and they're just kind of getting their rank. About the first time that y'all saw this, were you thinking, wow, there's a lot of kids on this boat? So, um, it, yes, uh, I can kind of speak to that a little bit, too. Another interesting point about Pullings in this, uh, once this book takes place, he is already, in effect, a captain himself. Uh, not in pure rank, where he would not be addressed on shore as captain, but uh, the rank of master and commander is something that a lieutenant gets when they take command of their own ship, but they have not achieved the rank of captain yet. So Pullings, in, in the book, is in effect a, a captain in and of itself. Uh, I, I was doing a little bit of reading on why there are a, a lot of like younger ki- kid kids on there, and it takes a long time to get the training, like skills, both in in attitude and in leadership, along with all of the seafaring and sailing skills that you need. That they would start them younger, or some people would basically like send their kid on like an apprenticeship to go be on a boat for two, three years. And th- there's also, at least for this movie, something that I had noticed. The relationships between them and the way Jack is with them, like one, I think he has an individual moment with almost all of them about trying to make them a better future captain almost or, or, or advance their career. He's got a really big mind for like legacy and helping those below him. They even talk about the people that he served under or uh, the man that he served, Horatio Nelson, who is a, a, a real person and was one of the more more famous British naval captains ever. And so they talk about like where he came from and who he admired. And then he's looking down and trying to bring them up to his whole idea about like legacy and honor and tradition, like lends itself to that. It's part of his duty mindset. It's it's part of his duty to, to be, because I don't know if he his his own actions all the time, especially in the, the giant decisions are the ones that he would say, um, like, are, this would be protocol. This is what you do. Uh, I think in that case, you'd be like, well, no, this is what I do. 
<laughs> but um, like the the mm-hmm. sextant training, the the individual uh, like sort of moments which each of those those younger officers, I, yeah, they are present. Um, he, he know we were shown that Blakeney, the youngest looking one, who gets his arm injured, that they then uh, cut yeah, amputate. That that relationship there. He also has a, a good uh, relationship with uh, Maturin, our our surgeon. But we have so much of that uh, that it's like, where do you find the time? Well, of course, they're together all the time. But in a movie, how do you find the time to make that meaningful? Something you take away from your watch, but also not invasive, as in they spent too much time on it. Oh, we have just enough of it to where it doesn't seem like there was too much time, but it's also still an aspect. One of the very important details of this movie that, right in that sweet makes spot, it special. Man. Right there. Well, and speaking <laughs> of other sweet spot details, there's a lot of them in this movie the promise once they get around cape horn and they're in the pacific the smaller like i'm not gonna say decisions but the 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 part where we have the promise to spend some time on the galapagos isles and then we don't actually get that created this struggle between i guess our two main characters and that's where i kind of feel like of the two relationships you mentioned before, this one between Stephen and Jack is maybe the most important to see how, like, well, I have a duty to the job I was given, but also to my best friend. I understand why they had to do that that friction piece. I don't remember it ever being this hot-tempered in the books. Um, Stephen's part in the book, given that he is an agent for the Empire anyway... Like, he's a very deadly character in the books. A very unassuming... Like, everything that Paul Bettany does in this to, to be that unassuming scientist is, is true of him in the books as well. But he's also someone with which not to F with. So, uh, how he's portrayed in, in the books, are that he's a superb pistol shot. He's an excellent swordsman. He's, you know, he's someone that even Jack is like, I'm not sure if I could win in a fight with him. So, um, you know, he is, he's deadly in his but own yeah, right. Yeah, they soften him up in They, they really, I mean. Yeah, did, yeah. did you see his uh, Galapagos <laughs> right. Island outfit that he was prepared to go on? They definitely softened him up. So, uh, but I mean, the naturalist piece is all still true. Uh, he just very, very firmly was set against Napoleon in the books and you know he saw that as tyranny and and was willing to do what he did as a spy uh based on that so he is a very interesting character that i feel like they didn't necessarily need to fletch out as much in this film because it maybe would have taken too long but you also see him fighting like five dudes at once after being shot so you know it's you know you still get a little bit of that you know this guy knows how to handle himself in the end anyway I think they did a really good job with that argument that they have right after they're uh, they're not going to stop at the the Galapagos Islands, and you know that that friction that they do have feels still uh, to me pretty natural. Like you know, in the beginning of the argument, I genuinely was like, "Man, you did him dirty. You said you were going to stop, and you didn't stop. Look at your pride. You know what I mean? Like that's where my my head." leans to go and then the second that he says like we do not have time uh, for your damn hobby that says to steven exactly i'm like oh dude yeah that's told that's it that's it it's over we don't have time for your hobbies 
that makes total sense. Um, and I've like switched sides. Like I get both of the yeah. characters there, uh, and it sets that up really well. It's another great right. Thing. I, I we're love. Still here. We still got a job to do, right? Yeah, I love movies like this because like, I, I totally get verbal ticks on certain lines and stuff. And not saying that that was specifically one of them, but this is a very wild, wildly quotable movie. Like, if you're somebody like me that, that, so that takes good. context clues in everyday life and and can insert movie quote here, like it, this is a very quotable film. I, I've got a quote for somebody from somebody not in this film uh, that will remind you of Jack. Um, this is a quote from Nelson, which is the, uh, the captain that he gives the book right. about Lord, yeah. um, to. Uh, yeah, uh, Nelson was, was is famous for having said, uh, England expects that every man will do his duty, um, which mm-hmm. sounds like something and, and the exact sort of thing that Jack portrays. That, that dude has one um, of the most impressive arrays of titles I've ever heard in my life. So it was Admiral Lord Viscount. And then insert, I think he has three or four names. Like a paragraph. Yeah, it's like, it is, <laughs> yeah. you know, thank goodness he wasn't like the third or something. Because then we would just be out of control. Like this guy's header was, you know, it's like looking at Giannis Antetokounmpo's name on the back of an NBA jersey. You're just like, dang. Yes. Step aside, Daenerys. Him. <laughs> but I was going to say one other thing where you talk about like uh, you know, attributing a quote where I can take a quote from another movie and, and attribute it to this was a uh, quote from a knight's tale. And again, it's about Jack. It's like, but you also tilt and you should fold. And that too is knightly. Ooh, I like that one. That's a good one. We have this um, <clears throat> pursuit, this goal, the duty to uh, either sink the ship or take it as prize. And we're dealing with, this is during the Napoleonic Wars, and this is a French ship. And we don't have much perspective from the French side at all. They're not savages. They aren't um, evil. Uh, now, in, in fact, what we find is that our Captain uh, Jack is kind of, there's this kind of mutual respect. Like, yeah. oh, this guy has done this to me twice. He's not going to do it to me again. And it's only through cunning that he's able to evade this, I believe, unnamed uh, French captain on the Acheron. It's, it's kind of neat knowing that like, we're getting a, compl- a story completely driven by uh, these men and these goals and not about like, oh, it's the right thing to do to kill these French people. I guess, what, what's, what, would you agree the only thing that's done that I guess could possibly be seen as like, oh, this was an act of villainy was that they're going to go like prey on whalers? Like, I mean, that's that's both sides are doing that, though. I mean, yeah, you know, that's that's how how lucky Jack gets his name. I mean, you you run across an enemy, you know, whether it's a warship or not, and if you take her, supply you take her ship, yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. You get a cut of that. So, you know, that's that's just how it's done. I would say that you know, as as Americans during this era, I mean, we built that ship, so. Technically, if you were looking at it from a nationalistic standpoint, we'd be against Jack Aubrey in this standpoint. We, you know, there was a lot of uh, American citizens who liked the fact that Napoleon Bonaparte was giving England a bloody nose. So um, <laughs> there's that. Uh, in fact, I think during part of this is is we're actively at war with England as well. So just during that era. So, I mean, you know, you can take the, the, the context of the movie in a vacuum and be like, well, yeah, Jack's the, the hero and the, you know, the, the protagonist of this. But, you know, 
during war, it's all a matter of you know, perspective. I like that they they didn't intentionally villainize the Acheron. Like like you're saying, they, they didn't uh, they didn't have to make them out to be evil. They were just French. Mm-hmm. They were just French. That's all they were. I'm That's giving it. orders. Those Typical are the Frenchies. French. I'm at war with the Frenchies. I'm gonna attack the Frenchie ship. <sighs> That's all that it really takes. They they didn't need to go further than that. And and actually on top of that, I loved that they didn't like show his face. They didn't like give you the perspective mm. of like, I think you you get like two spyglass shots uh, of what what mm-hmm. uh, the Acheron might be seeing um, on the surprise. That's it. But they don't do like a close up of the villain's villain, the rival of Captain's face. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You're not looking at their war room of like they're planning on how they come around. You're not looking at the decks. They're almost more like a force. Uh, In fact, I think the only way you really you really point out who they are is that they wear kind of a floppy hat in that (laughs) last Uh naval battle scene. Uh Like, oh, floppy hat French. There was one thing that I, I, Brian, since you had read the books, I wanted to ask about. There was like a, a timeline inconsistency that i noticed i don't know if this is better explained in the books but the beginning of this movie it says april 1805 um and he tells one of the midshipmen at dinner when he was recounting a story about nelson he said like Mm -hmm. uh yeah i served with him at the battle of the nile when i was like about your age which looks to be about like 25 years younger when the battle of the nile was 1798 it was only like seven years prior so in those seven, you know what I mean? It, it, se- like, it seemed like a, a timeline inconsistency to me, unless there was something else that I had missed from that. Um, I'm not sure. That was, uh, the thing I that was like kind of off to me. That was it. And that's real nitpicky. His, <laughs> the, the only thing that I know um, in terms of, of book knowledge toward this is that when Jack Aubrey served with Nelson, he was basically like um not as young as the youngest one he was more like calamese age. okay okay so it was yes some of these was, guys are like the actor portrayals are the, these the, i think they did a specific job to make them look young but some of the really young ones are still supposed to be in their like early 20s and mid 20s and, and that's true too i mean you you definitely have some you know how they use teen actors who are you know in their 20s and early 30s that definitely yeah. happened here so jack albury's in his late 20s early 30s through most of this stuff so yes in, in effect i think most of that weird discomfiture that you're noticing in, in timeline is just the fact that they used a 40 year old okay gotcha old. gotcha um so so there is that uh but um you know promotions happen based on merit in this so that's why you can have a guy i mean the one kid you know calumny he looks like he's what you know 13 14 right. tops, and they're essentially promoting him to fourth in command so that means if anything happened to jack pullings and i'm gonna blank on the third guy's name and i always feel bad but the the um uh, the one that shows him the his initials etched into the the planking. Um, if anything happened to those three guys, that kid's running. That he is the captain of that ship. <laughs> that rules. Yeah. So, and if something happened to him, it would you know sooner or later it gets down to the little blonde kid. So that's you know, just, who's capable. You know who is capable. Yeah, hundred percent. 
And, and here's the thing. You see in him a kind of what they were trying to get at with Jack Aubrey, because by the end of that, you know, there are crew members on that ship that would follow that little kid to their deaths. Well, and they kind of yeah. do. They well, definitely yeah, do. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely do follow him in his, when in his uh, boarding surge after that uh, sort of downward shot. Uh, oh, we're not going to hold this quarter deck. We need to charge now. Let's go. One of one of my favorite parts of this movie. Before we get into the battle, because I do want to talk about that last battle, I, I thought to myself, and I counted, there's less than eight minutes of combat in this movie. Would 16-year-old Dustin had thought this movie was as good compared to dad age Dustin? I don't think so. I think I would have been like, all right, I just got out of Lord of the Rings, or I'm, I, you know, we're in the era of, of, you know, of like big combat, armies fighting. I mean, th- this the the opening title screen in this movie is uh, what what is oceans are battlegrounds. We have a lot of chase, and we have a lot of weathering the storm, literally. But as far as combat, it's we're rewarded, I believe, later in the movie. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff, just procedure throughout this movie, and we can rattle off some details. I think the I think this might be the thing that I remember forever about this movie are. The attention to real details, the usage of real nautical jargon and terms, uh, little things that I thought were just so incredible to see. I'll start one off. Uh, name one if you like, but I think the, the one I like is uh, during that they're getting close to the shore of Brazil and one of the crewmen pulls up a rope and says, I think, five fathoms, and then somebody else records it, five fathoms. And then uh, he looks at the bottom of this weight or whatever it is that he used to go over the side of the boat. It says, uh, sand and broken shells. Somebody else repeats it. Sand and broken shells. And they write it in some ledger. That is information that's going to go to a map maker. That map maker is going to redraw this line that's been redrawn a dozen times. And then is going to write a number five from that approximate spot that the ship was at the time of that reading. Had y'all ever looked at nautical maps before, like in this before the movie? Just, just have you ever been on a boat and like looked at them? I can't say that I have. No. Even even modern maps, because as I I have done a bit of yachting in my time in the Bahamas and the Great Lakes. Even modern maps still have these lines with these numbers. Did you notice the numbers off yep. the side of the coasts? That's still done today. There are still markers for like, oh, the reef's a little high there and buoys there. Like the, it's still the way that like, I guess, 225 years ago, like, and, and even further, like, oh, this is just how cartography is done. Yeah. Head over to your um, library, pull out a, pull out some, some, some naughty maps. Take a look, <laughs> read the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I, I thought, and this is, I think where a little bit of our dad energy is coming out is that. That's cool. It must have been so yeah, accurate. Yeah, There's the, yeah awesome. it even says on one of the maps, it says like the new map of Brazil, like in, and it has the year, it says yes. the new map. And then he pulls on top of that another exact same map of Brazil, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there are some other things too. Um, the, the, the jargon itself, I think this was extremely important and it must have been a decision by uh, Weir by our director here is is to keep all of that nautical language in and to and to 
I think there's, there's two aspects here. One, to keep it all in. And two, to have Stephen Maturin ask on the audience's behalf. Do you remember when he does this? When he goes, no, wait, what does it mean again when they have the... Oh, oh what's sorry, the, the weather, the weather, weather gauge. gauge, the weather gauge. And, and he's doing that to kind of like help the audience too. like, oh, <clears throat> not there's going to be cross. stuff that's said. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think kudos to Peter Weir there for like, oh, it, it needs to look and feel like the time period, like our atmosphere feels real. Is this perhaps the most accurate, like atmospheric movie of what it must be like on a it's- boat? Ever, it's really good. Seen. They had all, one of the things that I really liked was being able to see a ship be refitted at sea. Like you never see that. You always see Mm-mm. ships get blown apart. All of the railing is gone. Like uh, you know, mass destroyed. Like there's you see all of that. But in this one, you actually see them like recarving out, repainting, refitting the um, everything. It's it's fantastic to see, and it takes them a long time to do it. And uh, I re- enjoyed seeing that. My my other my only other one that I'll I'll say is I really enjoyed the scene, and it's it's like a good like ten seconds, and it made me smile. Was Paul Bettany's character Stephen? He like takes his. They're all like causing a ruckus upstairs with the cannon fire when they're doing the timing test, and he takes he takes his right. earplugs out of cotton. You know, he takes them out to just kind of listen. And then he realizes that's too loud. And he puts him back in. Like, I don't know why I, I just like that little small scene. And there's tons of l- just watching them be on a ship in, in a way. That's really fun. I love it. No, I agree. Uh, and, and I do think that this is a movie that if you are watching it to watch an action movie, you've already gone into it making a mistake. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a movie of details. And the detail, I mean, this is truly a devil's in the details kind of film. And if you're not in for that kind of film, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for the end fight sequence times two and a half hours, this is not what you're going to get. But I think one of the greatest successes here is you could be thinking you're going to get that. And the movie still ropes you in for two, two hours, 15, and it's yeah. a thrill. Even if it's not explosions and swashbuckling. And you could learn a lot along the way. Like if you're used to seeing like pirate style movies and then all of a sudden in like the first five minutes you realize, oh, the captain's quarters just has like temporary doors and it's not like this huge giant grand like hall. You know what I mean? You, 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 You will just naturally pick up on so much stuff without any experience or any knowledge of it. And that's... Uh, that's fun for dads, I guess. You know, <laughs> how smooth was that? Every time it happened, I actually missed it on my mm. first watch through of how smooth it was to that they like put the mm. doors up and then immediately like yep. the lighting changed and oh okay, this is my the first one's board. the best one. Second one's good. The first one's the best. <laughs> one one of my it, one of my favorite just closet favorite parts of this this is when they're under attack initially, and he's like, "Forget the bloody swords, get the captain silver blow, and for God's sake, don't drop don't anything." Drop it, right? Immediately <laughs> drops everything. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's, I, it's but it's little parts like that. I feel like that make the movie that was amusing. That's somewhere where they could inject a little bit of humor into the film and and i i actually find this movie to be a very funny film 
Like, there's a lot of good lines in this that make you chuckle. Dustin, at the very beginning, you said you, you probably were going to add this one to your. I'm probably going to rewatch it every now and then, right? And uh, as we're mm-hmm. talking about it now, I'm realizing, like, man, almost every scene, I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, that one's, oh yeah, that one's good. Oh, that one has that thing I like in it. There wasn't anything about this movie that I found predictable. However, I did find myself with a sense of dread anytime things were slow. And I'm not going to say the movie itself is slow, but like there'd be a, a, a five or six minute period. I say something bad is about to happen. And that's when Maturin gets shot by that mm-hmm. Royal Marine, uh, Captain Howard, I believe. Mm-hmm. And say, like, whoa, okay, here's a big turn. Now, we had several deaths in this movie, but boy, I thought he was going to go. And I love the filmmaking here of we have now this conflict, which was we don't have time for your hobbies, Stephen. We don't have time for it. We have to pursue. And then we're shown, and this is, this is the fourth time that the ships are in close proximity to another. They're about to gain and chase down the Acheron. Would they have succeeded in chasing down and defeating that ship in combat? Well, like they say, like at the stern, every ship is weak. But would it have been a guaranteed success? No, I don't think so. But Captain Jack Aubrey foregoes that opportunity and takes his friend back to the island. And my heart was full. And this movie just kind of keeps giving you things that Maybe it like it, it wouldn't have been predictable when they show him qu- sort of on the stretcher. I think he's about to die, y'all. Oh, oh, he <laughs> looks bad. He looks real bad. I, I think that they do that when when they take him to the island. Like there's this series in there where there's a lot of conflict. Um, and then there's the following series of all of that conflict sort of being resolved and then being rewarded for it. The the very like cliche old man giving cryptic omens on the boat, you know, was saying it's a curse and everything like that. Oh, the one who uh, oh, successfully that went under yeah. a sh- ship uh, a brain surgery? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's that old said. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he says it's a curse, but I, I, I noticed that, like, the conflict within the ship's crew um, when, uh, I think it was the midshipman commits suicide with the cannonball, jump, jump, jumps off the side with the cannonball. It was it was not because he was dead, but because Jack gives the speech about forgiving those who had done him wrong, right? Being right, mm. being good to your fellow man, right? And then the winds pick up, right? And they were going to chase the Acheron. Uh, it looked like Stephen was going to die. They take him to the Galapagos Islands. He survives because Jack did something good for his fellow man. Stephen leaves behind all of the things that he had found, all of the animals, all of the cages, because he saw the Akron doing something for his fellow man. Like everything started to change in their favor when they started doing things for each other, or at least with that sentiment in mind. And so that the old man talking about the curse uh, or, you know, there's a Jonah. Right. I think that's an interesting way to look at why things started to go right. And, doing things for your fellow man also aligns with like the duty that you have to each other, which is the essential theme of the whole movie. So it, it felt really good. Oh, but it's shot. It's shot both ways though. And you can take both mm-hmm. however you want it. Is that what a haunting scene with the two with Hollem and one of the other midshipmen at night 
Oh, the when kid. The other kid. He's always been kind to me, Mr. Blakeney. He doesn't even right. tell him to leave. And Mr. And, and young Blakeney <laughs> says, Captain thinks we'll get our wind tomorrow. And Hollum says, I'm, I'm sure. sure of it. Oh. Now, like that's one of those things where it's like, I'm predictable is the wrong word. I'm like, oh, you're you're killing yourself, bro. And I see it, and it's the pressure of how you're being treated like a cursed man on the ship and yikes was it power yeah also among many powerful details like we get to see more of that character leading up to when jack calls him in and is talking to him right and i just think to Mm -hmm. myself when jack's telling him like hey man like you got to get strength and respect i'm I'm thinking this is not what you say to this guy right now like i I was like i was like this is not going to help him uh he he is telling him just be a better leader uh, essentially i mean jack says it much much better uh but those words won't help him in the situation that he's in of what we get to see from his character and so when you when you see he's just he's just yes sirring his way out the door and you can feel it coming you know you're like oh man some bad's gonna happen to him indeed it was rough and but but they do get the wind back uh, one one last thing about sort of atmosphere here is uh for me, at least, uh, a, a combo of an interesting detail they added and that they added from the books, I believe, is that we have that they play the violin and the cello. Yes, together. that's actually a, a, a fundamental introductory piece on how they meet each other. Uh, Jack either is about to or has just gotten his promotion to master and commander. So he's not a full captain, but he's getting a ship called the Sophie. And uh, he is at this performance that Maturin is also attending. He offends Maturin in some way uh, where it almost comes to, you know, he's thinking about challenging him to a duel or something because you know he was so ru- wow. rude. Anyway, Jack gets the letter. He's been promoted. He runs into Maturin again. And he goes, I was a complete ass to you. My apologies. Let me buy you lunch. And they end up striking up a friendship and talking about music and, and it, turns out that he's a doctor and he doesn't have you know whatever position he was after did not work out or fell through or some sort and so he enlists with check on the sophie as the ship surgeon so that's that it, it's literally a you know a they meet kind of thing um i want to say it was it was somewhere in the Mediterranean. Yeah, in the mediterranean and yeah and and that's how that was their first uh interaction it's a wonderful detail to get some really grand music into this movie, uh, which it also did not um, win an award for, but I believe got nominated for. Uh, just great. You know what? No, it didn't. Five other movies had, uh, according to the Academy, had a better score <laughs> than this one. According to them. It, it, di- it didn't get nominated, but you've got a wonderful like Yo-Yo Ma rendition of an unaccompanied cello. Just so, so many parts of this. I, I actually, listeners, the last movie I recorded for this podcast was Dog Day Afternoon which has no music. So to be able to be given some like a great score and some great classical music in this, I, I thought it's not just period. It was masterfully yeah, credit. done. Commanderly done. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> Credits are rolling, and I actually spotted in there Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany's violin and cello coaches are credited in there. 
which I thought was interesting. I was like, oh, look at that. Did they like get coaches and learn this just for the part? If they did, that's yeah. Assumingly so, they're credited as coaches. Very interesting. The answer is they did. They did learn how to play uh, specifically so that they could hold the instruments correctly. Mm. They are not playing as mm. well as the music you're hearing, but they are miming it in a way that looks real because of their coaches. They did learn how to um, essentially hold these instruments, uh, which was wonderful. Um, and now we have. So much more to talk about, but let's do it in our superlative fashion. You guys ready to do superlative? Absolutely. Ready. All right, John, as our guest, I'm going to ask you first, who is the MVP of this movie? My MVP is Paul Bettany. I think he, I think without specifically the way that he acts in his relationship with, with Jack, I think his acting in that is what makes it. That's the relationship that matters. I think Russell Crowe does a fantastic job as captain. I don't know a whole lot of people that could play or Paul Bettany's character. Uh, Brian, who's your MVP? Uh, I, you know, I always like to do something weird here. So I gave the MVP to the HMS surprise. Uh, not only were they <laughs> really able to bring this ship to life, they had two of them, uh, one for dry dock filming and one for at sea filming. There's this, it really is about an hour long, interesting documentary about the making of this movie. The way they treated the surprise throughout the film, not just Jack's love for it. You see where he's carved his initials into it. You know, it's a special ship to him. But, you know, when you when it's a home away from home, the way he says this ship is England, you know, that's, oh, you know, yeah. that's that I, I feel like that deserves a nod as a character in and of itself. So, yeah, like I said, just to be, just wow. to be weird, I'm giving it to the HMS surprise. I don't even think that's weird. That's really good. My MVP is uh, our director, Peter Weir. And we didn't talk about his other works, really. Um, of them, I had seen The Truman Show, which I love, from Dead Poets he, Society, which I believe he, is overrated. But He like, did The Truman Show like. right before this, right? <laughs> Five you just wanted to see yeah. one of these guys jump up on the taff rail and say, I, Captain, my Captain. <laughs> oh, Captain, my Captain. <laughs> so many shots of the ship itself, your MVP, but also like of the ropes moving against a pulley and uh, ships cracking and like the damage that you see mm. uh, it, it is the, the attention to detail is there uh, the hammocks that they sleep in the uh the box that he cooks those little quiches in or whatever they, those are like like these little decisions to keep them in is i think what's appealing to our dad energy of this episode so i gotta give it to him best supporting actor john uh, my best supporting actor max perkins's character uh the midshipman blackeny i believe his name is blake blakely <clears throat> He's uh he's he's my my best supporting actor. I think he does a fantastic. He's, he's job. very he's he's very essential to this film as the. This is how, with the right role model, you get a Jack Aubrey. Right. Yeah. He and 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 he's receptive to it as well. You mm -hmm. know, like he he's he's taking on the information and showing his progress throughout it too. Awesome. Awesome choice, uh, Brian. Your best supporting. Uh, I went with Paul uh, Bettany on this one. Uh, they almost didn't hire him based on his relationship with Ru Russell Crowe in the the recently released um, Beautiful Mind. Uh, I think that it was because of that recent relationship that this worked so well. And this um, this documentary I watched kind of talks about the ups and downs of it a little bit. And I still think that that everything that happened was was serendipitous to make this relationship look both long lasting and real. It did seem very real. 
I did see, and and I because I consider him a lead, I disqualified him from best supporting actor, that. which I think I would have given to. Uh, so I actually chose uh, James Darcy here. Uh, I feel like mm. uh, his portrayal here is of being capable yet also in awe, starstruck but also stalwart. He put that on for being both young looking but older than the rest of the midshipmen. It just kind of worked for him. I'd also like to put into the official retro movie roundtable record that I chose this actor because he's technically an adult and I wanted to make Chad proud for not choosing a child. <laughs> Max Burgess. <laughs> I, I listen <laughs> because I thought he was awesome. I was I was gonna pick your choice. Uh, oh. I wanted to give a I wanted to give a, a nod out there to Robert Pugh too. He plays Mr. Allen, the sailing master. One of my absolute favorite lines from this movie is when he's talking to Darcy and he goes, must have been a hundred nautical miles and he brings us up on his tail. That's seamanship, Mr. Pullings. My God, that's mm-hmm. seamanship. Uh, what's your hidden gem of this movie, John? Mine's going to be a little cheeky like Brian's was. <laughs> My hidden gem is uh, the the mostly absent Acheron. Like specifically, and we talked about it earlier, specifically that it is absent most of the film. Um, yeah. And that you never see the the French captain until maybe the very end, you know, uh, if he was the doctor. But that's it. Yeah. It it makes it so much better that they, it is the main goal. Less is more. Almost never see it. That is the best thing. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. What's your hidden gem, Brian? Uh, I went with Billy Boyd. I I absolutely love Pippin in this. Um, (laughs) He's he's a great character in in the books as well. Uh, He's also one of those guys that's just not in the books that much. Like he's there, but you know, they don't, they don't write him in exclusively as a character in the books, either, you know, just, just the occasional nod that, that uh, bonding is there. And I, I just, the, the way he said when, when he's maneuvering the ship to come up on his tail, like it's almost like Boyd knows what he's doing. And he's like, I said, Sow, Sow West. (laughs) <laughs> like I just I I love that because like just just the inflection he has like oh I know what you're doing yeah yeah, yeah. I did let's like get that after it let's get after I, it sir I said <laughs> it right at, right after he says it I said it myself I'm like sow sow <laughs> and and that's another thing about this movie I'm I try my best to mimic that like English English that comes mm-hmm. out of these guys mouths like. When they're sitting around, we had talked just very briefly about how they've they've really worked in some pieces here to make the movie funny, and it's when they're having that little like drinking group uh, below decks where he's like, "Think of all share the prize money," and he's like, uh, "Yeah, we gotta live to spend it first." And he's like, I've never met a dead man who'd buy me a drink. And he goes, I've never met a live one who bought one for I I just yeah, like that. So I just wanted to be like, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, 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 uh, I wrote that one down as a potential favorite quote for me. I loved that one. Yeah. I've never met a live one that you bought one for me. That's so yeah. good. This movie gives you both the chumminess of these I love guys it. who I are love together the all the time. And then also, you know, you get some of the hard times too. But to, if this movie was lacking some of that chumminess and camaraderie, I think I think the movie suffers for it. But uh, yeah, it's a good choice. <laughs> um, I love his delivery of the line is like, "Oh, he knows his birds and beasts too." You uh, show him a beetle, and he'll tell you what he's thinking. Yeah, it's a good but one it's too. but it, but it's thinking. It's 
think it's like with he'll, him, it's like, he'll tell you. You give him a bit. You give him a beat, or he'll tell you what he's thinking. Oh no! <laughs> oh, we should have done um, the whole podcast like this. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Right, no, pop, yeah. R- right, yeah. pop, right, right, pop, right, proper uh, surgeon. For me, my not one of them common doctors. Oh no, we're stuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. uh, my my hidden gem. I had a bunch actually, but I'm going to stick with uh, David Threlfall as uh, Killick, as sort of the the steward of Captain Aubrey. I think almost every line of his is a comedic line and delivered just kind of when you need it. He just he comes in with like four or five little quips throughout the movie. I thought uh, he did a great job with that. Very small amount of time on screen. Which right. it's South Oak's face. That's the end of the coffee. <laughs> Uh, put three lumps uh, in there <laughs> that's right yeah how nice of him um we got to recast someone john who are you recasting i would i would probably recast the uh i, I keep forgetting his name the sailor sailor master sailing oh uh, robert Pugh. yeah i think that his mr allen yeah i think he's uh his look to his role just could have been a little less cliche Mm, um, okay you know i immediately sort of can i can tell what type of character that is by looking at the way they they did his costume and hair and like a, a, everything for it i know exactly what type of character that's gonna be Con- consummate british overweight act or uh, overweight officer sort of the yeah, only overweight like, guy on the on the crew yeah they they i think uh there could have been a more interest i don't think it's bad i just think there could have been a more interesting choice there mm. so. sure what about you brian you got to recast uh, I'm. A, I, I, it's not that I don't like the guy, but I, I was going to recast the captain of the Marines as someone a little bit more stoic, and I wanted to go with like Bill Nye, mm-hmm. like just that, like obviously super English English. He does that that stoic face very well. I think at the time he would have been young enough to where it's believable. Although several of these guys are older gentlemen. Uh, for me, I had two. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with this one, even though I think the 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 Hallam arc of him being a Jonah, I did not expect it. I don't know words. Sure <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I I liked his portrayal, but I was thinking right around this time would be perfect, and it'd be sort of uh, catching lightning in a bottle. Is you take Neville Longbottom and you put him in there as Hallam, uh, the actor Matthew Lewis. Uh, mm. it, it, I think the timing would have been perfect. Neville Longbottom has a, you know, like that character is what he's known for. You take that actor, you put someone with a little more of like a baby face who has failed his test to achieve lieutenantship. And you you put him in that role who decides to take his own life. And I think it becomes even more emotional, perhaps. Um, But I do think that the person that portrayed Hollum did a great job anyway. I would agree. Like, I'm feeling for the situation, not for the, the yes. character, the actor. I'm feeling for it. This is rough for the environment and the circumstances that led to it. But yeah, if it was Neville Longbottom, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would be like, oh, yeah, poor kid. Like it would, it would hurt so much more. Yeah, I feel like that's that's what it needs a little bit. Let's look at the best shot, John. Um, it's sort of near the beginning when uh, Jack takes uh, the helm and he's he's full turning it. And in between, like the camera's like behind the wheel, and in between the like the spokes of it, as he's as his hands move, it's it's concentration, just rotating shot of his eyes, and just the determination. Oh, I I love shots like that. And any shot of like I'm gonna do this, I I, just, I don't know, I just love it. 
it's a, it's a very hype moment for me. Uh, it's, it's probably one of my, my favorite moments. Awesome. I wish there was a little bit more of it. Brian, what's your best shot? Uh, my best shot is actually, I think it was used in the, the preview for it, but it's him hanging onto the rope off the side of the ship God, going around yeah. Cape Horn. I have literally had what, what I feel is like that exuberance in the moment. Like, I feel like that's how I feel if, when I'm really in the zone, when I'm skiing, it's just mm. that, that like, this is, this is the apex of excitement and I'm I, unstoppable I, right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know? And it's like, I, I just, I, I felt it. I felt it. I know exactly how he felt right there. Well, if you ever have the chance and I've done, I've done that move hanging off the side of a boat 200 times and it feels just as good every single time you, you feel like an action star. You feel my like boat? you can take on the world. Boat dropping here, huh? Doesn't <laughs> really yeah. dropping my boat status. <laughs> yeah. Was it Dolly's um, boat? <laughs> no, Dolly yeah. would uh, we need to strike this from the record. <laughs> no, I can't talk about my time on Dolly's boat. My best shot is uh, is, is actually it's Hollem suicide. Uh, I think they do a cool thing with the water splashing up, and then uh, he's he doesn't like you know it's not like a cement shoe situation. He's just holding onto the cannonball shot, and he's looking straight up at Blakeney. And I thought that was haunting. Uh, I probably uh, tipped my hand a little bit earlier. I think that's maybe the arc that I'll remember a lot about. Uh, but yeah, that's you, my You really liked that suicide. Dude, I'm I'm really learning about myself and all the dark things <laughs> that I... Yeah, your your favorite uh, uh, supporting actors are, 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 ki- are hidden gems are kids, and you really like the dark moments. <laughs> kids in, in and suicide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, man. Pain, violence, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I, I will say one thing, <laughs> I, and, and this is this is something that... This is something that I've thought of, uh, you know, previously that, you know, if you were going to market, this is, this is a period piece drama for me. It's not an action movie, but if you're going to make it an action movie, if you cut the Mr. Holland piece altogether and had those be naval engagements, then you'd have your action. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It really doesn't take that much tweaking. No. I mean, but you see how much they come back to Mr. Holland periodically through the thing, and if those had all been naval engagements as opposed to you know his his drama piece, then you know then you have your action movie. But that would take away so much from what this movie is because I truly believe the most important part of this film is the interpersonal relationships aboard that ship. Yeah, and it would take away it's, one of the intraship conflicts. Yes, right, and 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 I feel like what happens on that ship is just as dangerous as what they're trying to do with the Acheron. Yeah, if they did that, it would be fine. But you're right; it loses its identity. Right. Then, what kind of film is it? And you're right. What a great way of putting it: loses its identity. Uh, best scene, plot point acting. Best scene, John. When Jack is cutting off the mast uh, that that had, is is anchoring them in the storm. Right. I feel like in ninety nine percent of movies, and the lead leader character in that situation. They disregard the advice that it's dangerous and find a way to save the kid and still not sink. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and this isn't like that. Nope. He's got to go. Will's got to right? go. Yeah. Um, to, to sort of coincide, is, is, there's an earlier one where he, like, cannon fire, like, it, just from, re- like, uh, uh, being on the deck of the ship, he, like, knocks over, he hits his head, and, like, it, like, knocks him out you know and he's just sort of like 
Oh yeah, yeah. They they just get hurt here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say both of those leading uh, let you as an audience member go. Oh, this is uh, this is going to be a little more real, you know. Yeah, it sets the tone well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, your best scene. Uh, I went with uh, Jack's speech to the crew through the initial attack of the surprise. Yeah. Um, I, I love everything he says to like get them hyped up. You know, the ship is England, and you know the you know making the the joke surprises on our side and whatnot. But it, it culminates in that you know the French are basically doing the equivalent of you know talking some smack as they come up on like English. <laughs> well, well uh, you have no opportunity, no chance. You know, like he's just talking smack, and then he pulls up, and he's just let fly and it's like all the cannons roll out and they're all like oh snap and then they just wipe them and i was like that is so metal <laughs> like, yeah well i like english how he's when they're like there's no chance Lila, to escape english you have no opportunity no chance that's pretty good that's pretty good that's really uh, good yeah that it really is i think the best part about it is that they're like oh well, i'm gonna fight in my british like i'm gonna fight in my british uniform like they were like now and like all the officers are like bah <laughs> like, like it's, it's almost like tear-offs in the nba yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely it's great but, but yeah. again it take, takes me back to one of those points where i was saying they just work in little bits of humor here and there but it's like all right from this point on no signals no salutes i sir yeah we're all gonna oh yeah it's gonna be really hard we're all gonna yeah. have trouble with that <laughs> yeah do you want your boys to grow up singing the marceline Oh yeah, oh yeah, the Marseille has. They, they, it's like, is it you? Want, uh, what is it? Do you want a do you want a guillotine in Piccadilly? <laughs> do you want your children to grow up singing the Marseille has? Stop it, it broadside! It. Yeah, and it, pull, pull, pull yeah. like you're pulling a Frenchman off of your mother. <laughs> <laughs> and when, that's the thing too. We don't dislike the French here on Retro Movie Roundtable, y'all. And they're not the villains here. This is just war. And that's speak for just, yourself. Just, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm just so, kidding. So another fun, another fun <laughs> point here. Is just, just so we can even the tides here. Uh, that was initially written into the book as a. It's a. It's an American privateer that they're after. It's wow. not French at all. So yeah. they just thought that uh, that that American audiences would be more uh, receptive to a French crewing an American built ship. And, but it was actually an American privateer all along in the books. Yeah. So, Can you imagine they, if they did? They're after us. Some, yeah. some guy walks in. He's like, "Wait, they're fighting America." <laughs> yeah. English whaler, all <laughs> over. <laughs> we got you, English whaler. You don't need to be scared. <laughs> Ain't nothing bad gonna happen to you. you just lay down those arms. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love that. That's my new favorite movie. Uh, I don't know okay. why we got like Super King of the Hill in the 1800s. But really I don't know. It's fine. I guess, yeah, my, my best scene is uh, is not violent or dark here. It's actually uh, the conflict between Aubrey and Maturin in his captain's quarters. Uh, when Maturin is, he's hurt. And I like, oh, I guess it is. Yeah, I guess it is dark. Sorry, y'all. I just want <laughs> I just want a flightless bird. Why can't I have my flightless bird? But but no, when he comes up to him about like talking about authority is is the thing and and, and broken promises here. I think one of his lines, and this is not my best quote, but it's something like, I for one am opposed to authority. It is the egg of misery and oppression. And I'm just like, yeah, dog. 
me and you. Like, <laughs> this is not my new favorite character. And oh so yeah, the, that's so light. You, you you've got <laughs> you've so got light. to read these books, man. Matron's character. To me? <laughs> well, this this is one of those movies where they truly pull. I don't want to cheapen it by comparing it to other dichotomies of characters, but I do feel like out there you have the like Jack Aubrey is the jock and Maturin is the nerd. And for some reason they're friends like it throughout the book. Jack is Jack is brilliant aboard a ship and he is a moron in land. And it, it's just, it, it's such an interesting thing. Stevens, it's almost comedic in the way in the books that Stevens constantly trying to keep him out of trouble. And to the point where he's like, God, let him get a ship because if he's, He's on board a ship. He's the smartest man alive. Second, he's on land. It's like, Bleh. so yeah. <laughs> it, so it's it, it's such an interesting, you know, it's such an interesting thing in the books how how those two couple. And uh, I I just I feel like you see that in friends sometimes where you're like, how are you two friends? And you're just like, ah, it works. Yeah, yeah. It, it, somehow it's worked this far. Yeah, it's like it just it works. Well, how about a uh, how about a wardrobe or a makeup moment that really works for you, John? Oh, I'll tell you what really works for me. Uh, Paul Bettany's Galapagos outfit. Yeah, that's uh, so good. When he's when he, when he's sitting there on the deck of the sh- the surprise, and he be- he's he's like. We're not. We're not stopping. And he starts to begin to pout a little bit in yeah. his hat. And it, oh man, it's so good. Yeah. I loved it. It really add, and and it does add to the scene. It it does his outfit that like he was ready to go. He was so excited. Got that his half favorite game. hat. Goes yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that that's, yours? Is that yours, Brian? Or you have another one? I uh, no. I now that I think on it, and after we we've mentioned it, I, I've got to go with the uh, the tear offs. Tear off uniforms. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah, it's great. My my is not a uh, wardrobe moment. It's a makeup moment. Man, they do a really good job of making Paul Bettany look like he's dead. Mm. That's that's just kudos to to wardrobe and makeup. That is what a, really that's yeah. really good. I thought they did yeah, a great job with um um yeah, with Blakeney too. But what were you? Doing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, not Blakeney. Um, the friend, the the one who dies in the end. Uh, acting first lieutenant. Oh yeah. Excuse me, um, lieutenant. Calamy. Calamy. Yeah, Mr. Calamy at the end. Yeah, I thought they yeah. did a great job with that corpse. Well, and let's also just say while we're on deaths. <laughs> well, let's also just say while we're on deaths. Uh, yeah, you love to talk. There about was an amount good. of. There was a good amount of people like, like it's like the the perfect Hollywood formula. Like people died, but and some of them were important, but not the most important ones. Like that, the decisions made there were perfect. Uh, let's I, change one thing about the movie. Real, real quick, before you bring that up, I, I just don't know where else I'll fit it in. Can we talk about the French cook real quick? Like, it's seriously one of my favorite parts of the thing. He's hiding under a table. He jumps out. He stabs Jack, but not enough. I mean, he catches his arm. And yeah. Jack thinks he's the captain hiding under a table. He goes, Le Capitaine. Le Capitaine. And he goes, Le Fabri. <laughs> <laughs> and then he crawls back he under the table. Away he just crawls back shelf. under the table, and I was just like, Sorry, "Was that, was that just, part? Of, was that part of the ending of the movie shift. that you felt you felt was a little confusing when you were a kid, John?" It's like, uh, "What happened?" 
No, as a kid, I probably was like, oh, yeah, French coward. I get it. But as, <laughs> as a kid, you know, those, that was the, 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 unin, the uninformed stereotype, right? I was, yeah. I was like 10. Right? We, we're going to get the most negative downloads in France after all this. They're going to be like, we're going to get hate downloads. We're going to be like a Amen. Howard Stern show for them. Yeah. He did ask what my child self would have thought. All right. People change. Well, as people change, what's the one thing you would change about this movie? Jeff? I'm not a big fan of like the melee combat on ships. I am a massive fan of, of gun, uh, gunnery. I'm a massive fan of the boarding aspects of the, the strategy and tactics used in naval warfare. But the second that it becomes like a very smoky, dusty brawl, I'm kind of ready for it, to get to the aftermath. Like, wh- okay, wh- what's, what's going to be the consequences of all of this? You know, um, and this this isn't necessarily with this specific film. I think in this one, it's pretty short. I think that there's got to be a little bit more of an interesting way to get through that dusty melee slug is all shot wise. I don't know. It's hard to do without maintaining historic accuracies. But that's what I'm saying. It's uh, you just said it. Thing. It's, it's the historical accuracy of it. It's the idea that things were incredibly loud. You would not be able mm-hmm. to hear the stuff. Yeah. Just as a viewer, I'm I'm ready for the aftermath thing. And that's just a subjective thing. Do you want that's a little swashbuckling at all? Yeah, I want a little bit of it. Uh, I did like, honestly, I did like the the bits of grenade tossing in there. Yeah. You know, uh, there's a, every time that there was something kind of like, oh yeah, like something different. It's just when it's sort of, you would describe it in video games as trash mobs, right? Like when it's <laughs> just, when it's just a random French, you know, sailor one, Sailor 2, Sailor 3. Uh, I just uh, Sailor, find myself zoning, waiting for the end. Sailor Moon. Sailor, Sailor Moon. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had the little red cap dude, the little Gavroche who comes out from mm-hmm. like the little tiny like uh, gnome looking guy who comes out and sh- sh- shoots. I think it's Calamy. <laughs> yeah, that that guy is uh, is awful. What's your one? What's your one thing you change about this movie? I don't profess to be an expert in boarding warfare but if it were me you've, you've clearly got layers you know you've got guys up front with pistols and swords you've got guys with pikes you've got guys with muskets and they're marines they're trained fighters if i were boarding a ship and clearly you know at this point in time firing lines were in vogue so at some point you make a line at one side of the ship and then you close in at least that's what it looked like in this film I would have a row of dudes, maybe three lines back, with bags of grenades, and I would just have them chuck constantly, just working that line forward, because those grenades don't do any real, like, it only does superficial damage to a ship, it's not like you're going to wreck anything that your, your primary cannons have already done, but you see these dudes charging forward with pikes and everything, if you just have a line of dudes just hurling grenades into that, you're going to lose less guys, because you're just going to be taking swaths of these dudes out, so I, I just, yeah. I don't understand the, the mixed use of resources that they have or don't have because i feel like if you just have a bunch of dudes lobbing grenades behind your primary line almost like a phalanx and then have those explosions happening behind their primary line taking out dudes behind them doesn't that just the attrition of that work yeah if jack like looking at the way jack catches ships with all the interesting out-of-the-box thinking that he does and then the the boarding combat is 
pretty pedestrian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a little bit out. Yeah, yeah. This is the best. This is the best that we can. That even my mind can think of is all right. We've done all of the creative part. Are we ready to charge? Okay, charge. <laughs> wait, wait. wait <laughs> yeah. Well, should we it, maybe it, put some thought into charge? No. Well, the, we, we like do. painted our whole boat just to get here, and now that we're here, let's just run it. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing: they make the same mistake the French made. Like they had the hubris to say, "We just they're all dead. wrecked you," and you know that's you know Alan says it right before he takes a bullet to the forehead. Looks like the job's done, sir. Why assume that? What a what what a quick death he had! Man. Yeah, just, yeah. just boom out of, the second that he shot, he's out. Well, and, he's and, out and that's just it. I, I feel like that. Yeah, it's a it's a hubris piece. This is something that Matron says to Jack. He's like, it's beginning to smack of pride. Overkill is not underrated. Like, just you know, like, mm-hmm. let's let's make sure the jobs that- how about how about we do one more creative thing like our lines of grenades well, like they, they they have a top mass they could have dudes up there just just oh, oh look there's a cluster down there that's winning yeah there's a cluster down think, there that's winning i think brian your suggestion kind of solves my issue you know what i mean mm-hmm. like the, the, the more interesting thing that you could like if there was something uh tactically interesting about the the, the ship combat the mm-hmm. you know then the boarding combat, then I would have been probably more engaged with it. But I think I'm a little uh, tried of the of the charge, and then we'll wait. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and and it's it's something that is so characteristic of the British military at the time. You know, let's all stand in firing lines on fields parallel from one another and shoot each other in the face. Like, who thought of this? And then, <laughs> and then, when you all like, when you all, it's in the rule, it's uh, in the rule book. Pre- presumably book. agreed to this. You're like, all right, we're gonna stand and shoot you in the face, and you stand and shoot us in the face, and whoever has the most people at the end wins. Like, yeah, uh, you saw that's the gentlemanly. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's what brings me down to it. I think that's those are there's some rule saying, okay, you've disabled an enemy ship, you board this way, it's. It's expected or whatever, but you get a guy like Jack Aubrey, you expect more. Yeah. What yeah. would you change, Justin? Mine, mine, <laughs> mine here. All right. I'm also pro grenade. Let me just say that. I'm, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm pro more grenades. There we go. Uh, but I'm also well, thinking like, for, I was trying to think about this was like, wait, would storing that many grenades be a bad idea on a ship? I'm like, well, they also store a bunch of cannonballs, I guess, but gunpowder. And gunpowder. Yeah. Right. But cannonballs yeah. also don't explode like the way that movies show. Like they right. do. Um, but no. that being said, uh, my change one thing is actually, it goes against something you said a little earlier, John, which was I actually think I would appreciate a little bit of the French perspective of who this other captain is. You need Does the French connection? The the, yeah, a little French connection here. Yeah, well, you're wrong, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I, yeah, I don't, I don't mind being wrong here because I think it does change what the movie is. I do like how it's completely presented from only the one side. And maybe I'm letting a little bit of that, like, how great? How much greater was the movie The Patriot made by Jason Isaac's portrayal of Tavington? So oh, it's greater. really good. No, would you want like? Would you want that level? No, of I want uh, somewhere like, in between. Uh, I want okay. somewhere in between. Okay. Maybe just the idea of of um, we we get an inkling that that uh, Doctor Maturin actually is familiar with the Doctor on the French ship. Like they know they, like there's. There's still a world that exists outside of these just these two ships. 
Mm-hmm. And so the idea that maybe the captain even has a name. It's like, oh, maybe we learn about some of the other grand victories of this captain. Or some. maybe we even see it in the first three minutes in like a short scene. Like, oh, this is how scary the Acheron can be. I don't know. But, and it's such a small thing because I really wouldn't change much else about this movie. Maybe you, maybe you see them actually fully broadside, like really, like a, a another ship. Yeah. You know, to be like, oh man, if they take one, you know what I mean? Maybe something like that. Yeah, maybe, but yeah. you, you also do lose though. Like if you get to see the French captain, you do lose uh, the final ruse hitting. Yes. Like landing, right? Yes. So. Yeah, and I, I don't think I would trade that, but I, I still think it's a it's a possibility there for... There's something that can be done, yeah. Yeah, all right, let's finish our last superlative here. What's the best quote of the movie, John? He may have had the weather gauge, but we had the weather gods. Yep. It's my favorite. And the officer's meeting, very good. Of, uh, of the remaining ones that we have left that we haven't said. Right. That's my favorite one. Uh, that is a good one. Brian, what's yours? To wives and sweethearts... May they never May meet. May they never meet. <laughs> yeah, it's good too. As a little toast. I, I've um, literally used that. I've used that toast in front of my wife. She knows what it's <laughs> from. So it, it's just, I, I, it's such a good thing to catch people off guard. And I love it. Yeah. Just, Dustin, just, can I guess yours? Yeah, of course you can. I don't, if you went serious, it's not going to be it. But if it's going to be something that you might repeat, it's the lesser of two weevils. I would totally use that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You must know that when you're in the service, one must always choose the lesser of two weevils. That is not mine, actually. Mine is, um, it, I did go serious with it because I think it shows this level of the relationship between Maturin and Aubrey. Aubrey says, uh, I can only afford one rebel on this ship. I hate it when you talk of the service in this way. It makes me so very low. And the words by themselves are a little disjointed. But it's just it's him being vulnerable to his friend. The connection between two very close friends, soulmates in a different way. To have a man say to another man, like, you hurt me. And I'm saying this to you because I know that it matters for you to hear how I really feel. And I thought that was special. And you don't get that all the time in machismo movies. It wasn't even really like thrown in your face. It was just like, hey, I don't like it when you do that. It makes me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't this like big yelling moment. It was a, hey, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. So in, uh, in, interesting tidbit. Uh, if you look closely several times where you see Jack's desk, he has letters written to dearest Sophie. Sophie. Who's his, who's his wife. Ironically enough, is also the name of his first command. The, the, the ship? Mm-hmm. So yeah. HMS <laughs> show, Sophie was his first boat, but it was also the name of his wife. Awesome. Which came first. May they never meet. <laughs> May they never meet. <laughs> we got to rate this movie and then we got to sign off because we have talked a lot. So out of five stars, half star intervals, what do you rate this movie? I'm going to give it a four and a half. It's, it, if, if I could do quarters, it'd be 4.75. You know, it's, it's, as, it's, it's a high 4.5 for me. <laughs> a high 4.5. Um, is it so enjoyable, but you just recognize there was something missing? I think it's one of those that I'm probably going to rewatch it and be like, yeah, it's a five. Yeah. You're- like I, I, I'm, I'm not commit. I'm very selective with fives. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not committed to the five off of that watch, but that doesn't mean it's barred from it. Mm-hmm. And in, and in fact, with how rewatchable it is, it'll probably end up there for me. Yeah. Great rating. 
What about you, Brian? Well, just because I've got to keep with my branding here, I'm going to give it a, a four. I, I think that it is deserving of five. It checks a lot of boxes. I think that there are some aspects of it that probably ran a little long. And I do think that maybe with a bit of editing, you could actually make this a longer film with less of the belly fat that, that makes it a little loose there in the center. So I do think that there's room for improvement, but I do think this is about as good as a movie gets. Both of your explanations are, I'm almost taking the words out of my mouth. I'm going 4.5 as well. Um, I was speaking for... American and worldwide audiences when I said that we made our decision not to pursue these types of movies and and a little more action a little more comedy it, a, a movie like this has uh, its place and its tone and that's and it it is rewatchable but it's something about our journey towards our thrill there's a lot of detail and a lot of sink your teeth into but I think it also just kind of turns some audiences completely away and it's the reason why I was told, oh, you, you don't want to watch that when I was 16. You watch something else. Um, I think it's something where it, there's an appreciation there, but that doesn't mean appreciation and enjoyment share the same room. Yeah. So I'm going to go for there's a reason. There's a reason why we've been saying this whole time that it's for dads. <laughs> <laughs> like the, there's a reason. Yeah, uh, right. Mm-hmm. And, and there's times that, you know, I want to sit down and watch the History Channel. But I think those times are outweighed by times that I want to watch you know, something else that's more exciting, perhaps. Um, okay, well, uh, that was our coverage of Master and Commander. Uh, we need to pick a movie for next time. Brian, you ready to help? Sure. Here are your options. Option number one, on Her Majesty's Secret Service from 1969, James Bond woos a mob boss's daughter and goes undercover to uncover the true reason for Ernst Stavro Blofeld's allergy research in the Swiss Alps involving beautiful women from around the world. Option number two, The Living Daylights from 1987. James Bond is sent to investigate a KGB policy to kill an enemy spies and uncovers an arms deal that potentially has major global ramification. And option three, License to Kill from 1989. A vengeful James Bond goes rogue to infiltrate and take down the organization of a drug lord who has murdered his friend's new wife and left him near death. Which option are we choosing? Like going against the grain on this, so I'm going to go with uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh yeah, at the at the top of every one of James Bond's briefings, OHMSS. Well, uh, that'll be fun next week. But th- this week, John, thank you so much for joining the roundtable again. Thanks for having me, you guys. It's a ton of fun. That's Sorry great. to the French people for things I said. <laughs> Apologies all around. Apologies. <laughs> Thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Hey, producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thanks for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Now call me a prude if you want, but I don't think it's good policy for the Navy to hand over a billion dollar piece of equipment to a man who has welcome aboard tattooed on his penis.